0: Hey, it's Leah. Before we start this episode, I just wanted to tell you about this other show called Stuff the British Stole. It's from CBC Podcast and Australia Radio National, and it's got all the story elements I love. It's got colonial theft. It's got museums denying that theft. It's got intrigue. It's got jokes by Australians. Join host Mark Furnell as he picks one artifact and takes you on the wild, evocative, sometimes funny and often tragic adventure of how it got to where it is today. Check it out on the same thing that you're listening to this on or on CBC Listen.
1: This is a CBC Podcast.
2: Hey, Leah. Hey, Phelan. Today we're going to learn about some Newfoundland and Labrador history. So, Leah... What do you know about Newfoundland and Labrador? Have you ever been?
0: I haven't. I really want to go. Um, I I really know nothing. I, I, shamefully, there's a lot about this country I still don't know, and I, I don't know a lot about Newfoundland and Labrador.
2: Well, for me, like, the big question was why it took so long for Newfoundland and Labrador to join Canada, you know, and what the impacts were for Indigenous people living in Newfoundland and Labrador when it happened. So today we're going to be mainly focusing on Newfoundland. Labrador, I see you. Please don't get mad at me um, because this is going to feel very Newfoundland-centric, but it's not, I, I swear. The province actually wasn't called Newfoundland and Labrador until 2001. Prior to that, they were just called Newfoundland. Wow, you said Newfoundland. A lot just
0: now. Okay, (laughs) we get it. We get it. Okay, and, and Canada came into Confederation, meaning all the places we know now as provinces and territories, became one in 1867. And when did Newfoundland and Labrador enter?
2: over 82 years later in 1949. And I know we have basically avoided ever talking about Confederation in the podcast because it's so well recorded and taught in schools. But when it comes to Newfoundland joining the country, I realized what a ball of yarn it is to untangle. It's a real will-they-won't-they story. Sounds like a rom-com. Kind of. Maybe without the rom or the com. But it got me wondering about the Indigenous folks living there at the time. Because in Canada, we have that fun assimilationist policy, the Indian Act. So once Newfoundland became part of Canada, then wouldn't all those First Nations folks have fallen under that policy? And that would be terrible, right? Well, it's a little more complicated than that. But before we can get there, let's learn a bit more about Newfoundland. Newfoundland. Prior to contact, we have a few groups of Indigenous folks on the island of Newfoundland and Labrador. We have the Beothic occupying many different parts of the island, hanging out near the shoreline in the summer to gather fish and foods, uh, and then moving inland in the wintertime to hunt caribou. We also have the Inuit hanging out in Labrador, um, both in the north and the south, and then there's the Innu spending most of their time in the interior of Labrador and Quebec.
0: Okay, so northern and southern Inuit, the Innu and the Beothic. Those are all the
2: the folks in that area. Those are all the folks. Um, And there is evidence that the Mi'kmaq were coming over to Newfoundland to trade in the 16th century, if not earlier. We do know that the Mi'kmaq were traveling to the island and trading with settlers.
0: And I hesitate to ask, but so who were the first settlers to land on the shores of of Newfoundland or Mm -hmm. Labrador?
2: Well, there are many stories about who may have landed on the shores of Newfoundland first, but the first people that we know of for certain are the Norse.
0: Okay. I feel good about that. I don't know why. I just always picture like Chris Hemsworth, you know, kind of like arriving. I feel like he's actually a nice person in real life. So I don't know. Is it bad that I like the idea of the Norse rather than the the usual suspects?
2: Like Britain and the French and French the, the Spanish, Spanish Dutch, and the Dutch, you know, Portuguese, like all the other people, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I, I feel the same way, and you want to know why? I, I would love to know why. <laughs> okay. Well, because I, it means then that that bozo, Christopher Columbus, wasn't the first European in North America, and I don't like that guy at all.
0: Right. Okay.
2: I I'm I'm with you. I like this. Okay. So the Norse would have been in Newfoundland around 1000 AD, but they didn't hang out too long, probably around 20 years or so. Then in the late 1400s, John Cabot shows up. His name is actually Giovanni Caboto. He's Italian, but the Italians think his travel ideas are crap. And so he trots on over to the English to see if they will fund his dumb exploits. They do. And when he lands in Newfoundland, he claims the territory for the English monarchy. Okay, yeah, I'm bored of that story, but yes. Yeah, okay. yeah, me too. So the Bozo John Cabot shows up on the shores of Newfoundland. Bozo, is this people's of- official title now? Like you're using this word? It is. is that his official is. title? Yes, okay. Yes, it is now. So, so
0: why don't we like him
2: generally? Well, he was copying Christopher Columbus or trying to.
0: Uh, you know, being genocidal is not a good look, but being a copycat genocidal person, <laughs> like... You know, <laughs> yeah. be your own person, yeah. John. Be yeah, yeah. Person.
2: And trust me, Cabot, if this was a who wore it better, Columbus is going to win every time when it comes to genocide. Yeah. So a lot of the stuff I read didn't position Cabot as someone who was involved in the slave trade. But we do know that he did buy a woman in Egypt and sold her a few weeks later.
0: Oh, um, I'm sorry for her. So he was yeah. in the slave trade. Yeah. Ew. Yeah.
2: Yeah. 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 Soon after Cabot, we see other Europeans showing up. We have the Basques, the French, uh, Portugal comes to town, Spain and then the Brits, of course. That's a lot of folks.
0: That's a lot of people.
2: I mean, it really is. And they all went to Newfoundland and Labrador uh, because it was a great fishing spot. Cod was really plentiful and it was an extremely valuable food source for those Europeans traveling across the ocean. It could be cured and preserved easily and it traveled well. It was an incredibly important item for trade. OK, I gotcha. Right. And I do know about that, the importance of cod to Newfoundland
0: and Labrador and the devastation face when that industry collapsed in the 90s. You know, it was mm-hmm. it was everything.
2: It's true. The history of Newfoundland and Labrador is intrinsically linked to cod. We see that right from the jump. Newfoundland quickly became an international fishery. But those Europeans, they weren't sticking around full time yet. Most of them would just come in the summer to harvest fish and then take off. It wasn't until the 17th century that we see the first settlers setting up shop year round. The English have an early settlement at Cooper's Cove, now Cupid's Cove, and you have Placentia, a French settlement. But neither has a very large population. So at this time, no settlers had really
0: claimed the the land.
2: So Cabot claimed it for the British crown, but Britain was too busy fighting wars to, you know, really lay any real claim to it. Mm -hmm. And it was an international fishery. You know, you had all of these Europeans coming in um, fishing and then taking off and leaving. It really was a seasonal place.
0: Okay, so it was like fly in, fly out, like you go get your Mm -hmm. duty free fish or whatever and then leave. Okay.
2: yeah. So, the, the, But the French and the British, they kind of started to lay more claim to parts of Newfoundland. You know, they started these settlements. Um, you know, we also start to see more Irish coming to the island as laborers for the English. Mm-hmm. Both the French and the British, you know, they had settlements of varying success. You know, by the conclusion of the Seven Years' War, which the British won, France lost and had to surrender all its land holdings. Okay. So during the
0: war, a war where France and Britain were fighting each other, there were, there were French and British people living yeah. in this area. Yeah. Okay. Okay.
2: That, yeah. Yeah. I know. It's like sounds like a really terrible roommate situation, right? Like, and, and trust me, I've had some terrible roommates.
0: Oh, I've I've heard from your roommates, but maybe oh, they what? weren't the <laughs> terrible ones. Phelan, not
2: sure. They were the stories I could tell you.
0: <laughs> so, what happened with France in Newfoundland? Like,
2: yeah, because like France should have surrendered like all of its land, but somehow it's still, you know, it's still retained um, St. Pierre and Miquelon, a place that still exists that French people still, you know, live at or and they, you know, but they use the euro. Mm-hmm. Um, you, ne- you need a passport to enter these places. It's really interesting. I want to go sometime. I've never been. Yeah, it's so close um,
0: when you look on a map. I know.
2: It's, I know. Wow. And it's like it's and it's the last land that France holds in North America. Mm-hmm. Um some French did head to uh Cape Breton in Acadia.
0: Okay. So while this is all going on, then you have indigenous people going like what's going on here? Or like what what was the yeah. what was the reaction?
2: I mean, there was some trade going on between the groups and missionaries landed in Labrador in the late seventeen hundreds and did what they do. So there was more and more interaction happening. And with more settlers showing up on the land, the number of the Beothic nation declined. And there's a lot of mythology uh, that they are extinct. But many in the Mi'kmaq community say that they were absorbed into their community.
0: Right. And we we covered a bit about the Beothic last season in our mm-hmm. episode about Shana Didith. So, you know, many Mi'kmaq say the Beothic joined
2: their communities. And I mean, that's not unheard of. You know. No, not at all. It's like it's a it's the way that many of our communities function. We intermarry or, as we say today, shack up.
0: <laughs> do people still say that today? <laughs> living together. Common law.
2: <laughs> it's a technical term. No. Yeah. If you're on the res, you're shacking up. OK. <laughs> Another thing I want to mention here is that there has been some controversy around interactions between the Mi'kmaq and the Beothic. Um There was and is this myth that the Mi'kmaq were brought to the island by the French to kill the Beothic. Um, Leah, I want you to read uh, this line from The Story of Newfoundland and Labrador.
0: The French brought in their allies, the Mi'kmaq,
2: from Nova Scotia.
0: In the Mi'kmaq, the Beothics found a deadly enemy. The Mi'kmaqs visited Beothic camps and lost no chances to murder Beothic hunters.
2: Yeah. So this textbook was published in the 60s, but this myth is still pretty prevalent. Mm. It feels like a myth
0: from the 60s, to be
2: honest. And
0: it it feels damaging. Like this is the stuff that often gets passed down. And it's a good way to Mm -hmm. blame, Mm -hmm. you know, other indigenous people for like the the population decline.
2: Yeah. Throughout the 18th and 19th century, war impacts population growth in Newfoundland. Men are fighting more and fishing less. War interrupts trade routes, too. And soon, the question of whether to join Canada or not was about to come calling. The road to Newfoundland and Labrador signing up for Confederation is less like a road and more like a really weird tennis match. There's a lot of back and forth. And I know you have a short attention span, Leah, so I'm going to summarize this as quickly as possible.
0: Yes, I love the recognition of my short attention span. Okay, go for it.
2: All right. In 1864, talks of confederation began. In 1867, New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, and then the province of Canada, because remember, Canada was a province before it was a country, they all get together and they say, yep, let's do this, thus becoming an independent country from Great Britain. Two years later, Newfoundland and Labrador were asked if they wanted to join, and they were like, nah, we're good. We're just going to keep living our best single life over here. We got all this sweet, sweet cod. And financially, we are flush, baby. By the 1890s, a couple of banks in Newfoundland failed. And it's really bad news. Unemployment is widespread. Businesses collapse overnight. And so Newfoundland goes to Canada and it's like hey, remember how you asked me to that dance? And I was like, no, well, I changed my mind. Want to go? So the dance being Confederation. (laughs) Yes, thank you. Thank you for playing along. So then Canada is like, nah, we moved on. Really meaning it didn't want to assume Newfoundland's debt. She had some baggage to work through. Then Newfoundland and Labrador went to England and they were like, hey, could I borrow some cash? And England was like, No, no, you cannot. But then Canada came back and was like, yo, you know what we'll do is we'll set up some of our banks there and you can have some cash flow. Newfoundland and Labrador was like, cool, cool. That's great. The conversation around Confederation was back on the table. Newfoundland, Labrador and Canada met. But when they got together, they realized that neither of them was really feeling it anymore. The spark was gone. The two don't talk much for a while, but in 1930s, when the Great Depression hit and Newfoundland almost goes bankrupt, people are starving, sick, and living in extreme poverty. Food rations, called the Dole, were given out, but they weren't enough. Riots occur. Britain steps in and says, you know what? I'm taking over. Which, you know, pretty common language the British. Anyway, so the British assume power in the province by taking over the government. Newfoundland and Labrador goes from a responsible government, one voted on by the people, to a commissioned government, one where the Brits are running the show with no real input from the people. Britain is like, you can have your government back once you get your finances in order. Oh, that's not going to go over well. No, right. And while the British are running things, it doesn't get much better. Then World War II hits. Being the easternmost place in North America for Newfoundland is incredibly important uh, strategically. It was used for air bases and naval bases. And Canada, Britain and even the U.S. all had access to them. World War II is actually good for Newfoundland and Labrador economically. With the war came jobs, construction boomed, local businesses flourished with an influx of soldiers. The U.S. alone had about 10,000 soldiers stationed in Newfoundland and Labrador. Hmm. Eventually, Canada is like, this bad boy from the south is cool and all, but how close is he getting with Newfoundland and Labrador? So Canada's feeling insecure,
0: it's getting nervous, Mm -hmm. feeling Mm -hmm. possessive.
2: A little bit. Hmm. So Canada was like, there sure are a lot of Americans around here. And some of them were sticking around. Soldiers and locals were doing that wartime thing, meeting, hooking up, getting close.
0: Okay. Okay. And now this is getting also... into a good story. Yeah.
2: <laughs> Continue. <laughs> yeah. Rom-com so, indeed. It's... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's important to mention that both in World War I and II, many Newfoundlanders fought and they're often forgotten that conversation when we talk around those wars. Uh, World War I was devastating, but World War II was economically good for Newfoundland. By the end of the war, they had a big old surplus.
0: Okay, take that Canada and Britain. It's like a revenge economy.
2: Yeah, totally. Like move over, revenge dress and revenge body. A revenge economy is the ultimate revenge. Exactly. So does this change anything? Well, it should. Remember, Britain said that it would hand Newfoundland and Labrador back control of its government once the colony got its money in order and once the public demanded it. Newfoundland was ready to take control. But now Newfoundland had this new shine on it and Canada was like, wait a minute. If this were a rom-com, this would be the moment that the girl gets a makeover and takes off her glasses and the most popular boy in school would be like, Newfoundland? I I can't believe it's you.
0: See, in my version of this film, (laughs) Newfoundland gets a complete makeover, head to toe, haircut, Mm -hmm. outfit change, and then the reveal happens and the popular girl a.k.a. the Brits slash Canada, fall in love only to have Newfoundland say, you know what, whatever. Like, just because I look different now doesn't mean that you value me inside. I'm still the same person, you know. (laughs) And then they leave them standing, like, holding a corsage out.
2: Mm-hmm. on the
0: steps and the rain. Mm-hmm.
2: The yep, idea that rain. glasses
0: can just make or break a look is actually, frankly, insulting. On behalf of the spectacle-wearing community, it's time we take a stand <laughs> and say, we are not okay as using glasses as a transformative plot device. Superman, I'm looking at you. We all know it's the same person.
2: So clearly, I uh, touched a nerve here, Leah.
0: <laughs> I just, I just feel like the fact that it's, like, ugly glasses take them off Hottie. i'm like i've worn glasses all my life like what are you saying popular culture <laughs> what are you saying okay
2: but back to newfoundland okay yeah continue <laughs>
0: sir i'm going to take a moment continue
2: all right all right So the war had had really shown Britain and Canada just how much Newfoundland and Labrador had to offer. And the last thing either of them wanted was for Newfoundland to hook up with the U.S. That would be devastating.
0: Yeah, new lover. How scandalous. Yeah, yeah. So in
2: 1946, a national convention was organized to decide what should happen next. And a couple of years later, a referendum was decided on, with the options being... To return to a responsible government, a Newfoundland-run government, stay with the British-run commission government, or confederation with Canada.
0: Okay, and so option three won confederation one.
2: Well, not yet. Like the vote was closely split, um, and it was too close to call. Responsible government got forty-four percent of the vote, and confederation with Canada got forty-one percent.
0: Okay, and so the Brits were the last choice then.
2: Yes, that would position the Brits as the last choice. But it was too close to call, and so a second referendum needed to be held. This one was held just months later. This time, the Brits' commission government was removed from the ballot because nobody cared and didn't want that anyway. (laughs) So that was kind of strategic, though. The Brits bowed out because if Newfoundland and Labrador voted for responsible government, one where it was in control of its choices, it might cozy up with the U.S. And that made both the Brits and Canada nervous. So Britain bowed out, hoping that its votes would go towards Confederation.
0: Sneaky because like Canada essentially is just like a face mask with Britain kind of standing in the background. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like it's like
2: interesting. Very sneaky. Yeah, kind of. And when the second referendum was held in 1948, Confederation with Canada won with 52 percent of the vote. Oh, that's still really close. It was. Confederation brought in massive changes. Industry shifted, infrastructure was developed, and entire settlements were relocated. This all meant a big shift in culture, too. People weren't living the way that they had. So I imagine there
0: was a pretty mixed reaction from everyone.
2: Yeah, some people were pretty pumped about it. This is Joey Smallwood in 1948, a big pro-Confederation guy who would go on to become Newfoundland's first premier. Uh, but tell me, Mr. Smallwood, aren't there a great many people in Newfoundland who don't feel the way you do about Confederation? After all, it was a fairly close vote. And many of us can't help wondering if Canada's 10th province may not turn out to be a rather uh, mixed bag.
0: You mean you're afraid Canada may have caught a tiger by the tail?
2: Well, since you put it that way, yes
0: well canada needn't worry about that i feel that within a year of union there will be no people in canada happier to be in confederation than the people of newfoundland
2: but what about all those people who voted against confederation
0: well the overwhelming majority of those who did did vote against confederation have already accepted it at the present time the only persons to refuse to accept the decision are a mere handful of professional politicians.
1: Well, that's certainly good news if you're sure about it.
0: I am sure. For years, there's been a growing feeling in the country that we should associate with Canada. We might survive but never prosper in isolation.
2: But not everyone was happy about this. Business people and many in the Roman Catholic community weren't into joining Canada. Many were worried about taxes under Canadian rule. One seal hunter who voted anti-Confederation was quoted as saying, we're in it now and we're going to be good Canadians, but whatever they want to call me, I'll still be a Newfoundlander at heart. And the conversation around if Newfoundland should have joined Canada still goes on. I found this quote from historian David Alexander that says, The people of Newfoundland, like the people of Quebec, know their nation,
0: but are uncertain of their country.
2: So we know how some people were feeling, but the more I looked into this, I wondered about all the Indigenous people in the region. Did they want to join Canada? Did they vote? Did they even know what was happening? Did they know what it was going to mean to be under Canada's control? So, in 1949, on March 31st, Newfoundland and Labrador became the 10th province in Canada. But what were the Indigenous people saying? I reached out to someone who helped me figure that out.
1: So, my name is Mara Hanrahan. I'm from Newfoundland and Labrador. And I worked for many years with Indigenous organizations and nations across Canada on land claims and other issues. And I also spent, um, I don't know, maybe eight or nine years working at universities as a professor. Um, I'm a member of Halibut Mi'kmaq First Nation, and I'm uh, also a citizen of Ireland through my mother.
2: When I was looking for Indigenous perspectives on Newfoundland, Labrador, and Confederation, there wasn't much out there. Then I came across Mora's work.
1: So there are a couple of very pernicious myths about indigenous people in Newfoundland and Labrador, particularly related to the island of Newfoundland. And one is that there are no indigenous people on the island of Newfoundland. We know that the Biafic became extinct as a cultural entity, although some married into the Mi'kmaq people. Um, But um, they became very romanticized in uh, Newfoundland culture, uh, they're gone, of course, so it's easy to romanticize them. And the the notion was that they were the only Indigenous people to the island and they're gone. So there aren't any anymore.
0: Right. So if they aren't there, I imagine the Indigenous vote for or against joining Canada wouldn't really even be much of a consideration to them.
2: But we do know that there were Indigenous folks in Newfoundland and Labrador. The Mi'kmaq, the Inuit, the Innu. I had my guesses about consultation with these folks, and Mara confirmed.
1: They weren't consulted. Um, so in Labrador, the Innu and the Inuits uh, were not consulted in any official manner at all. The Moravian missionaries would have been the uh, intermediaries between the Inuits on the north coast and government, um, but there were, to the best of my knowledge, no official consultations with them. And the Innu were living very much an Innu life uh, on the land. Uh, they weren't in settled communities by and large, and uh, they weren't organized in the sense of having their own political organizations. Neither neither group was. Um, so I suppose governments could argue that there was no official body to talk to. But it wouldn't have gotten that far. It wouldn't have been a consideration. It wouldn't have gone through their heads. Oh, we should talk to the Innu and the Inuit. That just wouldn't have happened. There was a great deal of of neglect there Um, and a lack of recognition that uh, Innu and Inuit were political entities unto themselves.
0: Right. So it would have been a stretch to have the government thing to even consult with the Innu and the Inuit because it just wouldn't have crossed any politicians' Mm -hmm. minds Mm -hmm. at the time, and the Beothic were quote-unquote extinct. But what about the Mi'kmaq at the time of Confederation?
1: So on the island, the Mi'kmaq were, uh, in some cases, living in discrete Mi'kmaq communities, but in many other cases living in mixed communities, mixed settler um, indigenous uh, communities. But I mean, this happens very often when you have very small populations living alongside each other. There is going to be some integration and what... Is sometimes called, and I don't like the word intermarriage. <laughs> so there was a fair amount of that, but there were discrete um, uh, indigenous communities such as Flat Bay and Con River. They come to mind. Say Georges is another one, um, but they too were were not consulted uh, at all as indigenous people. When I talked to elders about twenty years ago for some research I was doing, um, they uh, they knew that the referenda were going on and some of them voted uh, but they had no idea that the Indian Act even existed they told me so nothing was ever mentioned to them about you know would you like to be under the Indian Act would you not like to be under the Indian Act
0: so I didn't think of that like Would these indigenous people even be allowed to vote? Because under the Indian Act, indigenous people couldn't vote and and didn't get the vote until I think it was around the 1960s, right?
2: Right. Yeah. And I mean, the Inuit uh, did in the 1950s. But, you know, they just didn't have ballot boxes to put their votes in until like the 60s. And even now it's still there's a lot of issues Mm -hmm. with voting in the north.
0: Right. And, and just a quick reminder for people that the Indian Act is what the federal government uses to control all things First Nations. If you yeah. need a brush up on that, check out our episode from Season 2.
2: But here's the thing. Prior to Confederation, Newfoundland and Labrador didn't have anything like the Indian Act in place. The Indian Act was a Canadian invention, which for some reason... Never gets mentioned in the top Canadian inventions lists.
0: (laughs) Well, fingers (laughs) crossed it makes next year's list. There's always time. So once Newfoundland and Labrador joined Canada, did the Indian Act automatically go in place? Like it was just like, no,
2: no, hey? No, no. So post-referendum, Canada and Newfoundland needed to discuss something called the terms of union. These would essentially lay out the terms of the relationship. I just wanted to take a break to tell you about another CBC podcast I think you might like. It's
0: called Death in Crypto Land. It's a true story about a crypto tycoon, his secret past, his sudden demise, and an online sleuth's obsession to unravel the truth behind his mysterious company. You can check it out on the same thing that you're listening to this on
2: or on CBC Listen. Relationship, how things would run, governance, legislature, even margarine was discussed under the terms of union.
0: Okay, Why?
2: I I was hoping you would ask. Margarine was forbidden in Canada in the late 1800s.
0: Okay, again, why?
2: (laughs) Well, dairy farmers had a lot of voting power, and they did not like the idea of a butter substitute cutting into their profits. So there was a parliamentary ban on the manufacture of it. It was allowed for a bit during World War I because of dairy shortages. But then again, it was put on ice until 1948. But Newfoundland wasn't part of Canada, so they didn't have to ban it. They were cooking up mad amounts of margarine and loving that spread life, you know. And sometimes bootlegged margarine even got smuggled into Canada and sold for half the price.
0: Oh, I can't believe it's not bootlegged butter.
2: Yeah, exactly. (laughs) After a royal commission and a trip to the Supreme Court, it was decided margarine was a provincial matter.
0: Canada's so (laughs) weird. (laughs) <laughs> what a weird I place we live in Well that seems like a lot of work for a, a butter substitute But you know I live in Toronto where every second store is a weed shop so I don't know anymore like
2: <laughs> sure sure yeah Makes sense. anyway so it was determined that Newfoundland could make and sell margarine as long as it stayed within the province soon other provinces followed suit and allowed the sale of margarine but for a while uh, there it was illegal to add any color to margarine manufacturers weren't allowed to make it look like butter by adding yellow coloring some margarine companies would even um, provide a small color packet and then and you could add that to your own margarine to make it look more like butter but you had to mix it yourself wait what color is it originally it's like white it's like large
0: colored oh I had no idea this took a real turn this, this episode <laughs> I,
2: I did not expect to end up here but it was way too weird not to learn about it so here we Fair. are okay back to Newfoundland. So, you know, while butter versus margarine was being hotly contested when it came to confederation and the terms of union, Indigenous people in Newfoundland and Labrador weren't even considered. I asked Moira why the Indian Act was left out of the conversation when it came to the
1: terms of union. So it doesn't mention the Indian Act at all. It doesn't say the Indian Act will not be applied. It doesn't say the Indian Act will be applied. However, because the Indian Act wasn't in the terms of union, it kind of fell by the wayside and there were decisions, I think, by both Canada and Newfoundland to kind of not have it apply in Newfoundland. So this means that there were, uh, there were no status Indians, there were no reserves. Uh, later, it would mean that the land claims process would be exceedingly difficult because the recognition wasn't there, the official recognition. Uh, so that was very significant that the Indian Act wasn't mentioned there. Now, Indigenous people were discussed, uh, but they were not included, nor were they consulted.
2: Mora explained that when it comes to the Indian Act in Newfoundland, it isn't cut and dry.
1: Okay, here's the thing. So the research I've done with elders has shown to me that in some ways, not having the Indian Act was a good thing, and not having specific legislation targeted at indigenous peoples was a good thing because it meant you didn't have the reserve system with the past system for instance. So people have freedom of movement that their counterparts across the country did not have. Um, You didn't have the interference with the indigenous economy such as trapping in the interior of the island uh, that you would have had across the country. Uh, now, you did have interference with the indigenous economy when the railway got built, uh, when the land was surveyed, when logging came in, and so on, but you didn't have a legislative interference. Um, and there was harm from the churches, but you don't have the government saying, uh, you know, here is your land, you stay on this land. Also, Mi'kmaq people, uh, Inuit people could marry who they liked, uh, whatever. Uh, ethnic group uh, their partners came from and they wouldn't lose status because they didn't have it. So they could marry who they like and they could still be recognized as Mi'kmaq by their community and still uh, continue Mi'kmaq traditions and so on. So so there were some positive aspects of not having the Indian Act. The negative aspect of having the Indian Act is that you don't have a mechanism for recognition. So there's there isn't an official avenue that government can recognize you as Mi'kmaq or as Innu or as Inuit. Um, so uh, therefore, it's hard for you to get land uh, as as an as a political entity. It, you can't file a land claim when land claims came on in the 1970s because everybody would be considered non-status if we if the act had been there. You know. Um, and not even non-status because the Indian Act just wasn't applied. Uh, there were also, um, the Indian Act, it did involve some transfers of funding to bands and to um, communities uh, that Newfoundland uh, Indigenous people could not avail of and programs that earned statutory such as non-insured health benefits um, people couldn't avail of those at all. So any funding that was available for, you know, governance or community projects or anything like that.
0: That is so complicated.
2: It really is. On one hand, you can love who you love without consequence. You weren't impacted by the past system. You could go where you wanted, when you wanted. But down the road, putting any kind of land claim, getting funding for services, it was a battle. In the 70s, many Indigenous people in Newfoundland and Labrador began to understand just what had happened to them when Newfoundland joined Canada, just how little they were considered. And this is a time of action where there are protests, occupations of government offices, litigation. And finally, in 1984, the first Mi'kmaq community in Newfoundland was recognized under the Indian Act. Con River. Other communities would follow, but the fight continued and continues for many Indigenous people in the province to gain recognition. I mean, and I I doubt I have to mention the complications around Indigenous identity. It seems the word pretendian is on everyone's lips. Mm -hmm. And a pretendian being someone who believes that they are Indigenous or, you know, pretends to be Indigenous. So membership in our communities, it it isn't a straight line. It's not easy to understand. The rules change from place to place. Colonization worked in a lot of ways. And in places like Newfoundland and Labrador, not having the Indian Act in place has had deep and damaging consequences, which, you know, it breaks my brain a bit.
0: Yeah, it's really complicated. It's, it's, Yeah.
2: In 2011, Halibut Mi'kmaq First Nation was formed, which would function as an umbrella Indian Act community for the whole island. But again, membership and belonging are two different things.
1: Here's Moyer again. So the creation of Halibu is a good thing now, in that you see a lot of uh, programs and services coming to communities in Newfoundland and Labrador, and uh, you see um it's kind of giving people permission to celebrate who they are, and so on, which which is good. Which is, we know that you know when culture is strong, people are strong. Um, but uh, Halibut has a lot of problems in the sense that is it is a landless band, so no land was awarded to the band at all. So it's it's different from virtually all other bands in the country without that land base, it's very difficult to create or revive an economy. And it, it seems to be a form of discrimination that this is something the Newfoundland Mi'kmaq had to agree to, um, it, to be landless in order to get a status and the Indian Act banned. Um, the other issue with Halbu is that the membership was not decided, Who would be a member was not decided, or the criteria were not decided by the Newfoundland Mi'kmaq themselves. It was decided largely by Ottawa. Uh, The application of membership criteria seemed to be uh, very arbitrary in that uh, you had some uh, siblings were members of were accepted as members of the band, and some were not, and they're from the same parentage. So lots of families were split apart in terms of. Of membership, is even a case of twins failing. One twin is in, and one twin is not.
2: Wow, that twin story—that's
0: that's just wild.
2: Yeah, another thing that really shocked me is that membership could be impacted if you were away from your community; that like you wouldn't be considered.
1: And the other thing they did was you—you you could be from Flat Bay, for instance, but if you had move to another Canadian province, or if you were in the military, uh, gone away for years, serving overseas, uh, you weren't recognized because there were residence criteria. So you have an economy that's marginal, that's quite troubled. People move away for work. They do this all the time. We have a massive diaspora uh, across Canada and elsewhere uh, because of the labor situation, especially after the collapse of the fisheries. Uh, People from Newfoundland, Mi'kmaq and otherwise are overrepresented in the Canadian military because of the economic circumstances of the island and and, and Labrador. And you can argue that the failure to apply the Indian Act is part of the reasons that these communities don't have, you know, good working economies. Yet people who move away are being punished. But it
2: isn't all bad news. I don't want to leave it like this. Like Moira said, there are plenty of great things happening in Newfoundland and Labrador.
1: So today you have people who are very, very proud to be Mi'kmaq. And I think this is fantastic for the youth in particular. So you have kids who are growing up out, if you like, unlike previous generations. Uh, You have the Newfoundland government uh, making some positive overtures towards uh, the... um, First Nations and Inuit people of the province. You have a remembrance garden for residential school survivors and those who didn't survive on the grounds of the lieutenant governor's house. Uh, You have First Light, which is a friendship centre, native friendship centre in St. John's, but it's much, much more. Uh, Everything from uh, daycare to regular concerts to... uh, programs, and even a place to stay for people who are involved in medical travel, and um, there's a very big presence of Inuit drum groups and um, First Nations singers and drummers uh, at official events in the province that is 10 times more than when I was growing up, where it was almost absent. Um, So those are some of the good things that are happening.
2: In spite of confederation, in spite of having the Indian Act or not, the Indigenous community is finding its way back. And it's starting to make its own rules about membership and who belongs. Because Indian Act or no Indian Act, community gets to make those decisions. And I'm here for it. The Secret Life of Canada is written and hosted by me, Phelan Johnson. And me, Leah Simone Bowen. Eunice Kim is the producer and sound design by Graham MacDonald. Script editing is by Yvette Nolan with research assistance by Andrea
0: Eidinger and CBC Archives. Roshni Nair is the digital producer, and the executive producers are Cecil Fernandez and Chris Oak. Arif Narani is the director of CBC Podcasts. Our logo
2: is by Badawogan Illustration and Design. You can find us on socials, and our email is secretlifeofcanada at cbc.ca. Rate and review us wherever you listen. It really helps other people find the show. Thanks for exploring Canada's hidden history with us.